I want to show this little bit of scripture, and it's found in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. And there's one other little bit of scripture, which is Matthew 6, 21. Matthew 6, 21. I'll start reading. So, Luke 8, verses 1 to 3. Soon afterwards, Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been healed, healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Herod's household manager, Chusa. Susanna and many others. These women were ministering to them out of their own means. And Matthew 6.21 says this, For where your treasure is, there your hearts will be also. And so what was happening? Jesus was wandering around Palestine with the disciples and uh, doing great things, some wonderful things. And, um, and people were joining them. And there are mentioned here some woman, three by name, and that um, the Lord had blessed them, Jesus had blessed them, that had spiritual problems, and they had been released from those spirits. Demons had gone from them, and they're mentioned by name. Uh, there was Mary. Everyone called her Maggie. There was Joanna, and there was Susanna, and others. And they were grateful and thankful. And they said it, no doubt, verbally. But they said it in another way. They said it uh, financially. And uh, they were grateful and hopeful, and not only because of what had happened to them, but they were hopeful that it wasn't only going to be them, that as Jesus and the disciples were moving around, that the impact that that had had on their lives was going to impact other lives as well, and they were starting to see it. And so it says that what they did is that they took money out of their own pockets and helped finance Jesus and the disciples. They took money out of their own wallets. And there's a strange thing there, really strange thing uh, about Jesus. And here's the question. Why did Jesus just not apply to trust Tairafati for funding? <laughs> because he was doing great things in the community. Hey. Or why did Jesus not just do a miracle? Because he'd done that before. You know, he'd uh, helped Peter find a coin in a fish's mouth to pay the tax. He'd fed people uh, miraculously with bread and fish. Why does he let them just take money out of their own pockets to help fund the ministry? And it's because of this. Because it was the right thing to do. And Jesus knew something about our hearts, about human hearts. And Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 21. Where your treasure is, 
your heart will follow. So where you put your finances, your heart goes in that area, right? If you love coffee, you buy a coffee, your heart goes there. <laughs> Ask this man. <laughs> uh, we could say all sorts of things, but I've, I don't want to offend you. But, um, and Jesus wanted people's hearts. That's why he didn't apply to trusts. That's why he didn't do miracles all the time, sometimes. And he allowed people to take money from their back pocket and to help in that way. He wanted people's hearts. And so as part of our thanksgiving, concentration on thanksgiving, I want us to think of our hearts. And that's why we got these uh, on the chairs. And uh, we're really grateful to, uh, to us as a church, how generous we are as a church. Uh, many of us give in terms of automatic payments and just keep on giving. And um, that is so appreciated and it's really helping the church and the ministry what we're doing uh, in this area. So, not only verbally, but financially, if you want to put your heart in, and many of us already are, um, as we look into the future, we are hopeful for the future, for next year. There's, I'm going to give some more information about that in two weeks. Um, but if you really want to give into the future, here's an opportunity with the hearts on. Let's pray. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord. You give us the opportunity to be involved in your ministry in many ways, like um, as we celebrated Caleb's involvement with us over many years and even this way that we can be involved financially too with what you're doing amongst us and out from us. We thank you for that, Jesus, and how you do provide for us in many, many ways. We are grateful. Amen. Tenakoto, tenakoto, tenakoto katoa. Today we celebrate the American Thanksgiving tradition, and I would like to thank Carl and Shar for inviting me to extending the invitation to help plan um, this celebration, along with Courtney. Um, it is an opportunity for me to give back um, the warmth and the love and the welcome that we as a family have received ever since we, ever since we started congregating in this lovely community. So as it goes, um, we had plans for others to share <laughs> um, some of their life story and um, how they have experienced the Lord at work in their hearts and However, circumstances uh, led to me being the person um, sharing, apart from Ken. So thank you, Ken, um, for graciously sharing the origins of the American Thanksgiving tradition. Um, like most of us, um, my life is full of graces and challenges, and I've liked to share some of the challenges that I have faced and the graces that I have also received that have allowed me to journey my challenges and the impact these challenges have had in shaping and transforming my identity um, and ultimately how it has affected my worship. And you wonder how does that relate to Thanksgiving? Well, Thanksgiving is a tradition that was started by migrants, um, individuals who were seeking for a new start and a new beginning. And when they reached their promised land, um, it was a brutal year. 
and um, like uh, Ken explained, they lost 50% of their population at that time. And yet they saw God in their midst and a year into their pilgrimage and into their new identity, um, they gave thanks. So I was born and raised in the Caribbean island of Puerto Rico, and it is a common United States Commonwealth. So we are born American citizens, and we celebrate um, Thanksgiving tradition, as well as all of our other local and Spanish descent and religious feasts. Um, a little tip about us is that we are probably number five in the world in the number of public holidays. We do like to party. <laughs> and if anybody knows anything about me, um, I do like to host, and I like to you know, have parties and celebrations. Um, it's too hot over there, and, you know, it's always a good time to stop working and party. <laughs> so I'm also a third generation affected by the disease of alcoholism. My maternal grandfather was an alcoholic, and he died from the effects of alcoholism in his life. Um, he was very abusive to my mother, and my mother's personality emotional and psychological development was um, profoundly disturbed as a consequence. My mother gave her life to Christ when she was 13, and the impact Christ had on her life was real. I cannot deny that. It was real. And it was certainly protective for our family. My mother was sober from alcohol, but she was not emotionally and psychologically sober. As an adult looking back, my, my upbringing can easily be considered a dysfunctional one. And despite the fact that our parents loved us the best way they could and they had resources and tools to love us, our home was an abusive home. My mother suffered and still suffers from an untreated personality disorder. It is um, borderline personality disorder. And it's a categorized uh, mental illness under the DSM-5 criteria, which is a diagnostic manual that um, mental health specialists use to be able to classify symptoms of disruptions and dysfunctions of the mind. And, um, this devastating condition affects 1% to 3% of the population. The, the term borderline is a historical term coined to describe people who were diagnosed to be on the borderline between neurotic and psychotic. People who live in relationship with these people, with these individuals who suffer from borderline personality disorder often know that they're highly intelligent, they're functional, but at the same time, they know that something is terribly wrong with them, with their behavior. And we often don't know what to do about it. We don't know that it has a name. Their behavior presents a pervasive pattern of instability in interpersonal relationships and self-image, as well as affect and mood, um, including impulsivity, self-destructive behaviors. BPD was first presented to the general population through the 1981 docudrama um, called Mommy Dearest, in which um, the life of uh, actress uh, Joan Crawford, who suffered from BPD, um, is depicted along with the experience of an impact on her adopted children. It comes from a book that her, that her daughter wrote. Because of the nature of this disorder and the nature of the mother-child relationship, untreated BPD has the most impact on the children 
of the sufferer. Psychology Today has an article describing the impact of um, being parented by a BPD parent as a de brutal womb. Children of BPD mothers have a host of long-lasting adverse effects in their sense of self, disrupted and disorganized attachments, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, self-destructive behavior, and even BPD themselves. The demands of having to grow up and to develop under the conditions imposed by the condition on a primary caregiver often lead to a mental health crisis in young adulthood among children of a BPD parent. By age 16, I had reached the conclusion that something was really wrong in our family dynamics. And after a particularly disturbing incident, I knelt down and I cried out to God to help me find a way out of my house. Being a female in a traditional conservative, religious Hispanic family, the odds were not for me. Children, particularly girls from good homes, don't leave home until they're married. And it is not uncommon for some of my friends I saw who married in order to escape over domineering and over controlling parents. God provided the answer I needed by placing in my heart to pursue university training in the United States, despite the fact that what I wanted to be was a missionary. He spoke to me very clearly that I was to attend to university in the United States. And to my surprise, my parents supported that idea. At the age of 18, I metaphorically crossed my first Jordan and I left home for good. My academic training led me to a profession, postgraduate education, and a career in Baltimore, Maryland, where I met my husband, Ralph, and I earned my master's degree and ultimately my doctorate degree. I was poised to continue my career in health policy close to the heart of the United States Capitol. I got involved in governmental agencies, policy advocacy, and lobbying for my profession in the US Congress. In 2010, I became a mother, and that was the beginning of an unexpected journey, which I continue to travel on. Following the birth of Emma, I experienced my first mental health crisis, and my autoimmune condition went into high gear. The demands of motherhood in conjunction with my struggles with mental health and my autoimmune condition created the conditions God needed me to experience in order to start the much needed process of healing me from the inside out. In 2014, my husband and I sensed the call to migrate to New Zealand, seeking for a better work-life balance that would enable us to care for ourselves and parent well. At 35 weeks pregnant with my son Joshua, I crossed my circle Jordan and we migrated to New Zealand. However, the impact of this move on my life and my family of origin was not what I had planned or expected. This move significantly disrupted the roles and the fragile dynamics within my family of origin. And my family of origin was really upset that we were moving so far away. So they turned abusive towards me in return. And I started to face in earnest the roots of my own mental health fragility and the impact it had on me. All the while I was attempting to start a new life in a new country, 
be a wife, parent my children, struggle with my chronic autoimmune condition. Throughout, my family continued to punish me psychologically and emotionally for having left. The past five years have been full of immense graces and blessings, mixed with grief and sorrow and fears and pain. I know what it feels like to reach the end of myself, where my own resources and my tools cannot carry me further, and I have needed to rely on a power greater than myself. I know what it is to fight for my own sanity and find the giver of power, love, and a sound mind. I know what it is to feel so much pain in my heart that death seemed like an appealing option. Yet, as the psalmist said, it was good for me to be afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. What are God's statutes regarding my identity? Who does he say I am? The past nine years, God started a process of ridding me of false identities and a false ego. I was, overly, I was an overly responsible daughter. I was an overly protective sister. I was an overachiever. I was an accomplished professional with a promising future. Today, I'm a homeschooling mother and I'm a housewife, and I'm proud of it. It was good for me to be afflicted because I had to dig deeper in, to understand who I am. Who does God say I am? I can't rely on my circumstances to tell me who I am. I can't rely on my parents or my roots or my heritage to tell me who I am. The stories, my circumstances, my roots, my parents may tell me can be very far away from the truth of my purpose, my value, my worth. So who does God say I am? I am God's masterpiece. I'm created in Christ Jesus for every good work. I am no longer a foreigner. I am not a stranger. I'm a fellow citizen of God's people, a member of his household. I am built on the foundation of apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him, I too am being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. God set me free so that I may have freedom, so I can live a free life. He calls me to take my stand and to not allow myself to be burdened by the, th by the thou shalts. He also tells me that his grace is sufficient for me and that his power is made perfect in my weakness so I can boast and not feel ashamed so that the power of Christ might rest in me. The Christian faith is a faith of apparent absurds. It follows a counterintuitive logic, but there is, it is a logic nonetheless. In this walk, we're told that weakness reveals God's power Therefore, our weakness is an advantage. We are freed from the slavery of protecting our own ego and attempt to control our environments in order to protect ourselves. To attempt to impose our self-will over our life and our circumstances for the sake of control so we can feel safe. We are freed from the tyranny of self-will. 
In this faith, we are told that whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever wants to is able and willing to lose his life for him and for his calling will gain it. Christ save us from ourselves. The Christian faith teaches us that suffering is not our end but our beginning. We're not asked to deny or dissociate from our pain. We're invited to connect with our desires, our pain, and our lament. God speaks to us through the aches of our hearts. Our ache, our emptiness, remind us that we are more than physical matter, that we were made to love and to be loved. We were created to experience beauty, love, glory. We're spiritual beings made for eternity. And so we are asked to bring and offer our pain. We cannot offer anything to God to save ourselves or to redeem what's past or to redeem mistakes or to redeem what happened 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 200 years ago. But we can offer God our pain. We can offer our witnesses. We can offer our sickness, our heartache, our disappointments and our tears and anxiety. We can offer ourselves as an act of worship. He invites us to open the door and let him dine with us. In exchange, Jesus promises that all things can work together for our own good. He promises that whoever believes in him, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In Christ, suffering or discomfort or pain or disappointments are not the end of us, but the medium through which God does his best work. He really overcame the world and its troubles, and he calls us to rest in his victory. He calls us to overcome alongside him. It was good for me to be afflicted that I may learn your statutes. My challenges have been met with incredible graces. As a good supporting husband, great friends, a family of faith that teaches me each day how precious my life is before God. My surrender is an act of worship. And often I need to let go of my own expectations of how I would like him to provide for me. But he does provide for my needs graciously. And in return, I have found more contentment and serenity. And I'm learning the art of trust and rest. And so my gratitude and my worship is perfected one day at a time. After 40 years in the desert, God called Joshua and the people of Israel to, go, to cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land. In Joshua 4, the author tells us that upon crossing the Jordan, God stopped the flow of the river so the Israelites would cross on dry land. God instructed Joshua and the people of Israel to erect a stone memorial on the other side of the Jordan so that the memory of God's acts on their behalf may not be forgotten, so that they could come back to that memorial and retell their story to their children and to their children's children. This passage of Israel through the desert and through the Jordan into the promised land can metaphorically represent many experiences in our lives. Times are circumstances that may have been difficult, yet times where also we saw God at work. We were asked, we we're asked to remember our deserts and our Jordans. And like the Israelites, we we're asked to erect memorials that remind us, that retell the story, so that everybody on earth would recognize how strong God's rescuing hand is. And so that we would hold God in sublime reverence always. 
As we respond to his everlasting kindness with songs of praise and adoration, I invite you to erect with me a stone memorial. Some stones over there. Um, representing all the times God has dried up your Jordans, helped you through your deserts, fulfilled promises, lifted your soul and spirit towards hope, and encouraged you to continue walking towards your promised land. Feasting, celebrations, memorials, parties, these are all acts of war. They're acts of defiance and resilience. When we feast, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and fears will not have the final word. Nothing good and right and true will be lost forever. All good things will be restored. Feast and be reminded. Take joy, take joy little flock. Take joy. Let the battle be joined. Let the battle be joined.